Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 102 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today we get to visit back with Laura. So Laura was first introduced to us on the part two episode that I did with Gwen on meaning making. So Laura emailed in about how her life has really been changed and she's found meaning again after the death of her son Luke. So as promised, she is on the show to talk more about Luke and his life, his faith, and what her life looks like now, four years after his death. I know you will enjoy listening to Laura as much as I did talking to her. Thank you so much, Laura, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I'm excited to talk to you about Luke. Thank you, Marcy. I'm excited to talk about him and be part of this podcast. Yeah. And I just want to say I really appreciate your podcast and your kind of ministry here to other moms who've lost children. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, why don't you just go ahead and start and just tell us all about Luke? I'm the mother of three boys. Mm-hmm. Also the wife of almost 30 years now of my husband, James. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So um, my oldest two boys happen to be on the autism spectrum right now. They're 26 and 24, Sam and Jay. Mm -hmm. And then my youngest son is Luke. He would be turning 21 on August 15th. But he was diagnosed with stage four cancer right as he was turning 15. And that, you know, the quick story is that within a few weeks, it was diagnosed as stage four, um, something called rhabdomyosarcoma, and he had to have his right leg amputated above the knee. Um, and this was all right as he was supposed to be starting his freshman year of high school, which he was very excited yeah. to be. Well, why don't you just tell us, just back up a little bit and just tell yeah. us about Luke and just talk about who he was as a kid and just so we can get to know him a little bit. Sure. So he was... I I used to call him my sunshine. I would sing, you are my sunshine to him. Sometimes I'd sing it to the other boys too, to wake them up in the morning. But um, when I would sing it to him, I would realize how, how that song fit him. He was just so bright. He was such an extrovert, so friendly, even from a baby. He was just this laid back, happy go lucky baby Mm -hmm. and loved being around people as much as really, I think everybody else in our family is more introverted. And he was this extreme extrovert. Okay. Love to be around people. If he would see someone, a total stranger, but they were alone, he would go over and talk to them because he thought, well, they need somebody to talk to because he always likes having someone around. (laughs) (laughs) 
So he was a very bright, intelligent from early on, we could see that he was doing, you know, he was going into kindergarten, learning how to do multiplication and division just because his older brothers were, and he wanted to figure it out and he could. (laughs) That's impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Also around that age, he liked to play connect four, but he liked to challenge adults because he liked to beat them. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a lot of mostly college students coming in and out of our house because of the ministry my husband was in. And he would say, oh, do you want to play Connect Four? He's this little five-year-old. And they'd say, sure. And you'd see him play the first game real, you know, like they're going to be real generous with him. And you'd see their, <laughs> you know, they'd think, oh, wait, he knows what he's doing. So then the next game they were going to really try. And after they lost the third game to him, they'd look up at me and say, I'm really trying. <laughs> and I know I really try to. I lose a lot to it. <laughs> Uh, had a way with he was smart and bright and you know bubbly as he grew up he would have these hobbies or interests that he would just dive into full force and want to perfect it at some point he saw a yo-yo expert come into his school for a uh, mm-hmm. an assembly, you know, he was into yo-yos for a while, learning some yo-yo tricks. Tall buildings were something he was really excited about, like the world's tallest buildings. So that was more of just learning the facts mm-hmm. about tall buildings. And but he, one of his biggest was he did a little skateboarding, a little rollerblading. But one of his biggest ones was magic. And he mm-hmm. was in middle school, about twelve years old, and taught himself magic through videos on the internet. And he was amazing, mind blowing. Really? Yeah. (laughs) You know, he and he'd of course do it with adults and be one of the things was he had that personality to like just so comfortably talked and pulled people in and made jokes. And so, you know, he'd be doing this magic trick and be like, well, look in your back pocket. And they'd pull out the card. And even I would think, when did he put that in? How did it get there? (laughs) One time, even we were delayed in an airport on a family vacation and he was watching the, how angry uh, the customers, you know, Mm -hmm. were getting because our flight was, it was a mechanical problem and we were just delayed, delayed. And eventually our flight got canceled. And um, so he went over to the person working at the gate and said, can I do some magic for you? Because he wanted to relieve their tension because so many people were so (laughs) And then they're calling, the gate agent is calling out the flight attendants and the the, um, pilots, come watch this kid. He's doing a magic show. (laughs) (laughs) And again, that's who he was, you know, he... Yeah, he wanted to make people happy. He loved interacting with people. He wasn't afraid of anybody. And I, you know, I mentioned the adults. He would interact with adults pretty comfortably, but he loved kids too, younger kids and playing with them too. And yeah, he was he was also musically talented. He was a very good pianist. He played the flute in the band, but he did choose the flute because it would be the smallest instrument that he could carry back and forth to school and he could even just stash it in his locker. <laughs> yeah. I was a flute player. That's very smart. Yeah. 
My Andy played chose the French horn. That's not great. And he's the no. absolute smallest kid in his class. And there he would be lugging this huge French horn back and forth to school constantly. It was hilarious, right. actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but he would pick up other instruments and just teach himself. Like we had a saxophone in our house. So he taught himself the the alto sax and signed up to be in the jazz band for a year. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, he was excited going into his freshman year that summer. He was excited about being a marching band. Mm-hmm. His, at that time, his hope was to get a music education degree and maybe be a, a you know high school band director himself one day. Um, he, he had been practicing tennis over the summer and he was excited to be on the, the tennis team. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I had mentioned earlier that that didn't happen the tennis team didn't happen um because of of the cancer so yeah so how did things start what what um happened when to for the diagnosis of the cancer when did you first notice something was wrong i should say um it was so i'm may of 2015 Mm -hmm. um was diagnosed in august of 2015 he had been playing frisbee and it was a new interest that summer frisbee (laughs) of course yeah, <laughs> he was just playing out in the street with someone and he thought, you know, because he came down, he, you know, kind of came down on a curb and kind of extended his Achilles tendon. And that's where he felt it. Um, the pain he thought, you know, and we thought yeah, he injured. Injury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Took him in. I said, well, let's give it a couple of weeks because if it's a sprain, it'll, you know, heal in a couple of weeks. When it hadn't, we went in to see. Our family doctor um, happened to see a PA at the office and she thought it was, again, just an injury and he needed to stay off it, which he wasn't doing. I kept saying, you need to stop playing mint frisbee. You need to stop practicing tennis so much. Uh (laughs) He kept doing these things. But it was interesting because the, you know, sometimes it would be painful and you wouldn't really know why. And other times it wouldn't be painful, but he had just played ultimate Frisbee and, you know, practiced tennis. So we went back two more times that summer. One was just for his physical and happened to see that same PA each time. And she said, well, maybe you want to go see a sports medicine doctor. Maybe they can, you know, help Mm -hmm. figure out how to heal this. And we went there the end of July, the local sports medicine doctor, and he uh, took an x-ray, which really doesn't show you a lot unless there's a break, I believe. Mm-hmm. He said, well, let's let's do an MRI. And he said, I think, you know, I think he has some kind of Achilles um, injury, maybe even a tear in the MRI would tell us that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, right, he had gone to band camp. And when he came back that night, we went to do the MRI mm-hmm. and then two or three days later, he left to go to young life camp and they called and said, we need to do another MRI with contrast. And what I didn't know was the contrast was to look for a tumor. So they had seen something suspicious, but they didn't tell us that they just said, we need to do another one. So when he came back, they did another one that day or the next day after he came back from camp. And um, then they called us the next morning and it's one of those, you know, I'll never forget this yeah. phone call. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they called my husband's cell phone early in the morning. And he usually doesn't turn it on until he's about ready to go to work. So he was about to go to work was I'm guessing around 9am. 
And he said, oh, hey, the doctor's office is called twice now. Um, I'm going to call them on my way into work and I'll call you and let you know what they said. But he didn't. He never left the house. He came back in on the phone and said, they're going to get him out of a meeting right now, Laura. So I, I think maybe we should take this call, you know, together. here yeah. together. Mm-hmm. And even then, all I thought was, oh, he's going to have to have surgery. surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and like, oh, that'll be too bad. But, you know. Yeah. And you think, oh, he's not going to probably be able to do marching band this fall. Yeah. yeah. Or mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And that'll, you know, that, that'll be hard. It never occurred to me that there was a tumor growing in right. there. And it right. was, I didn't say this, it was swelling more and more as the summer progressed. There was swelling there. Um, and so, yeah, then the doctor said, we saw a very large tumor in your son's calf about seven, eight inches long. We think that the radiologist and I think it's probably cancer, but you won't know for sure until you get a a biopsy done. Mm -hmm. And he referred us to, well, Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. The Mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeon was just part of spectrum, not really a a pediatric, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was on a Friday. It happened to be the day before his birthday, his 15th birthday. And on Monday, we went and did a biopsy. Um, and on the following Friday, which would have been what the 21st, we got the call. Yes, it is cancer. And mm-hmm. it's called rhabdomyosarcoma, which I had never heard of, yeah. but which happens to be a pediatric cancer, which again, I didn't realize there are cancers that are exclusive to the children. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's one I'm definitely familiar with, but that's because I'm a pediatrician. So yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next week was scans and tests to see how far along it was. And that week we found out it was stage four. It had already, there were a couple spots in his lungs, in his pelvic area, there were a couple spots. And then that's when they started talking about amputation, Mm -hmm. that this tumor was so large and had taken over so much of his muscle and his, his nerves that the only thing they could do was amputate. Mm -hmm. And they, they laid out this year long plan of treatment at this children's hospital in Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. They said, now we can do the surgery first thing, or we can start with chemo and treatment. And in about three months, we take a little break from chemo and, and do the surgery. And at 15, you know, we gave Luke the option and he said, I'd rather just get it over with and do it right away. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that meant in less than a week, once we said, yes, he was going to have his leg amputated. Yeah. And it was all just, you know, it was like surreal and a nightmare. And how is this our lives? My totally healthy kid is now going to have his leg amputated and spend a year getting chemotherapy. And he's not going to be marching with the band this fall. And he's not going to play tennis. You know, it's just such a shock when you hear cancer, I'm sure for anyone in any stage of life. But Mm But, and Luke too was the one that probably was the one you didn't worry about as much. Right? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, as I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, have a pretty deep faith. I struggled with my, my older two being diagnosed on the autism 
spectrum. I struggled with asking God, why? Why would you let this happen? Why would you let a second son be diagnosed in my family? Mm -hmm. You know? And so there was definitely a part of me saying, okay, really? I already have two children with lifelong disabilities. Yeah. And now my third one's going to face cancer. Why wouldn't you step in, Lord? Why wouldn't you heal this so we didn't have to deal with this? Yeah. So it was something I've wrestled with and still now and then wrestle with, with God. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I will say, Luke, he was a believer by then. And his faith was really amazing. At some point early on, my husband had looked up some statistics and he said, Luke, one in 400 children are going to be diagnosed with this in the United States this year. You're just one in 400, you know. And Luke said, well, I'm glad it's me and not somebody who doesn't know Christ, because I think it's going to be easier for me. (laughs) His parents were thinking, we're not glad. No, (laughs) not at all. Yeah, (laughs) we wish we could have that attitude, but we don't. We're still saying, God, come on. (laughs) I said to him sometime in that process of being diagnosed with stage four and knowing he was going to get an amputation. And I said, Luke, you don't deserve this. We, you know, this is so unfair. And he said, Mom, I don't deserve any. I deserve the death that Jesus died on the cross. You know, <laughs> again, my mom heart, you know, didn't really want to hear that, but I appreciated that he had that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually just recently become more of mine. You know, it's taken almost four years to to start looking at life that way and, and what happens to us in life and not saying, God, this is unfair, but realizing all that he's given us and done for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and to, I just think about, you know, sometimes the why me, why me, why me? But then you ha- kind of do the well, why not me? Right? I mean, why not me? Right. Right. We, you know, I, like I said, I'm a believer, but I'm no better than anybody else. I sin just as much as anybody else. I need Christ's, you know, death on the cross just as much as anyone else. But for whatever reason in our human heads, we like to say, wait, no, I don't deserve it. No, I know. Come on, really? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 So what was his course then like? So he had the surgery and then you started, I'm sure, some chemotherapy. Well, it was very rough in the beginning. Uh, the surgery went fine. and mm-hmm. But of course, the adjustment to um, not having a limb is difficult. Phantom pain is very real. Mm -hmm. And that was very hard for Luke to feel like that leg was there when it wasn't. Yeah. He didn't want to look at his, his stump. That was very difficult for him. And he didn't for maybe a few months before, for some reason he really had to, but um, he, so he was having a little trouble healing from the surgery. They just, his, the, the incision was looking irritated and red. And so we were bumping back, starting chemo. Right. And then they did a second, very minor surgery to see if there was an infection. And it turned out there wasn't. They think he just had a reaction to the type of sutures they were using. So they switched to a different type. And then the, you know, the redness really went away very quickly. Mm-hmm. But before we started chemo, 
within probably two weeks of that second surgery, um, he was having a, a lot of pain in his, in his stomach and his abdomen, and it was getting worse and worse. And then I would call and, and talk to the doctor and say, I mean, he's in a lot, a lot of pain, you know, kind of holding himself. Yeah. They would say, well, if he starts throwing up, then bring him in, you know, and yeah. it's probably the antibiotic that he's has. Yeah. So he did start throwing up. We came in, it took a couple of days and another scan before what they realized was happening was that he had a blockage in his um, intestines oh my. and they did. Yeah. an emergency surgery, it was like 11, 1130 at night. And um, as it turned out, he had two tumors in his intestines that were blocking and they took out a, somewhere around a foot or a foot each of intestines, small intestines, mm -hmm. but everything else looked good that they didn't see any other tumors growing in there. And they said, We're, we can give him one week to heal from the surgery, but then we've got to start chemotherapy. Right. Um, so he was still healing from this major abdominal surgery and we started chemotherapy. Um, the doctors told us this cancer does respond usually very quickly to chemotherapy. And that mm -hmm. was true by, that was in October. And by Christmas time, we had had a scan um, in the new year, I guess. And there was lots of shrinkage and disappearing of, of some of the tumors, not all of them, but the, the chemo really did work very effectively right away. Mm -hmm. But they warned us that they were more concerned about it relapsing than they, they knew they'd see this yeah. response right away. But relapse was the big issue with this particular cancer. Yeah. You get it down, but you just couldn't quite get rid of everything. So then I would. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. We never did get, he never was totally cancer free mm -hmm. when right. he was almost there about a year later, a little less than a year later, this tumor that had disappeared after that first set of scans in his sacrum appeared again. Mm -hmm. And at that point it that's called a relapse, even though we never were in you total know, remission. Yeah. Mm -hmm. total remission. And that means you have to try new chemos because mm -hmm. the, the cancer has become resistant to the chemotherapies you're using. Mm -hmm. And so we switched to some different chemos. One of the problems, which this happens with cancer and treatments, you just always have unexpected <laughs> was mm -hmm. he had, no, he was allergic to one of those, one of those chemos, but it wasn't, um, it, it took a few months for them to realize like, or he developed this cough that wasn't going away. And it was inflammation in his lungs from an allergic reaction to one of the chemos. Yeah. So then we had to switch to a new chemo, you know, drug. Mm -hmm. He had radiation two different times, once the first spring. And then once that fall, the one that fall was on his, um, sacrum on that tumor that, that was so stubborn. Yeah. By, so that was fall of 2016. By February of 2017, we had a set of scans and that showed that the sacrum tumor, even though it was radiated for 28 days and still doing chemo was still there. And that a couple other tumors were now popping back up again. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the doctors told us that this would take his life. 
And they told Luke, we always, at his age, we always had him know what was going on exactly. Right. And had, yeah, had him part of the decision process. And he had really struggled with the treatment didn't have an end, basically, because it kept getting delayed. And then we changed what kind of, you know, chemo. And and when we changed the kind of chemo, they didn't lay out a plan that said in this many weeks we'll be done. They said, we don't and we'll be done. And that he did not like that at all. That really gave him a lot of anxiety. And he he said, I, I don't know if he said this to me, but he had written it in a journal that he just he he almost wished he would find out he was going to die because then there would be an ending because he didn't like this no ending to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in February of 2017, that's what the doctor told him. He was almost happy <laughs> when he heard <laughs> at the moment. Um, and uh, it did, you know, hit him later. The grief of, of yeah. his life was going to end. He, I, I thought he wouldn't, he would say, I'm just done with treatment. He hated the chemotherapies and the the side effects, the nausea, the diarrhea, the feeling weak and dizzy all the time, all the while trying to do physical therapy to learn to use this prosthetic leg. Uh But he really wanted to uh, work at a Young Life camp. He grew up going to Young Life camps when his father was working there because that was my husband's job. Uh And he, there's a volunteer crew there called the work crew each month that are high school students that volunteer and they wait tables or do cleaning or do outdoor work. That was his kind of his bucket list was, I want to be on the work crew before I die. And so he said, yeah, I want to try a clinical trial, um, something that might at least not mean inpatient stays for him. He hated to be inpatient. Mm -hmm. It did. It gave him the time he needed to be able to work on the work crew that summer in July and August, which is the camp is in Michigan. Okay. But he was, you know, he was under hospice care by then. And the hospice nurse just said, oh, that's great. I get to drive up to this camp. And <laughs> Well, good. Glad they had that outlook. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the nurse would come up about once a week mm-hmm. while he was there. He was getting sicker weaker, having just more issues while we were there. As a matter of fact, after the the first week, he had just felt sicker and sicker and was doing less and less work with his crew. And um, we were all very, felt very defeated because he said, I think I better just go home because this is working. Again, I, in my faith, I was just so angry. I, I went out on the property where I knew no one would be and just yelled at God. And I said, look, I'm accepting that he is going to die. All he wanted was to be on this work crew. You can't give that to us. And I wasn't even an asking for a change. I just was letting that anger out. And um, that evening he had fallen asleep early in the evening, which was a little unusual for him. And he, he woke up. I think I was going to give him some meds for pain and, he heard people in the lobby of the building we were staying in. And he said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, they have that little party when camp changes over and we don't have any campers. And so they're, they're playing some games and some cards. And he said, well, can I go out? <laughs> and I said, 
if you're feeling up to it, yeah, you can go out. <laughs> so he gets in his wheelchair and we take him out and he joins a game and is having a great time and stays up till like one o'clock playing cards with some people. And the next wow. morning when he wakes up, he was just so much better. He just felt so much better. And, you know, maybe God said, I will, I'll gift you another week, you know? Yeah. yeah. He was able to do, he wasn't able to serve on the work crew like he would have if he was healthy. He would sure. sleep in. He would try to eat lunch with his work crew, do some work in the afternoon. He even, which was big for him, would say, I'm going to go back and rest for a while before dinner. And then he'd have dinner and do whatever else the work crew was doing that evening. Mm-hmm. And he did that for another week, but he was getting more and more tired. But he he got to do some of the, the big things that he wanted to do on the work crew, one of which was share his testimony with a group of campers. Mm-hmm. Another thing he got to do at the end was they have all the work crew on the stage in front of all the campers and they hold up signs that are kind of a really brief testimony, like struggled with eating disorder, you know, and now I'm healed by Jesus or um, had a bad relationship with my father growing up, but now I have a father in heaven on the other side. So they had Luke come out last He had his prosthetic on, which what we didn't know then would be the last time he ever wore his prosthetic. Mm -hmm. And he kind of limped out. It wasn't fitting quite right. And his sign said, broken on earth. And then he turned it around and it said, made whole in heaven. I don't know how much the campers knew about his story, you know, that we knew within weeks he would probably pass away, but this was his last wish. Yeah. But it was so powerful to all of us who did know his story because that was his his perspective he did one little writing on the blog and um that summer where he said my situation is not ideal but if it doesn't you know if i'm not healed i know i'll i'll go to heaven and that will be ideal yeah Uh, so he had this eternal perspective Mm -hmm. and again just the work crew was like this chance to just make new friends and get to know new people. And even in his, you know, feeling weaker and sicker, he, that was still what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, and it is, it is comforting to know. I mean, I think about my own son, Andy, and, you know, he was in the car one time, and I've shared this before, um, that they were going he was doing a carpool to, they sang in the Grand Rapids Choir of Men and Boys, and they were just going to rehearsal. And um, somehow the subject of heaven came up, and one of the other boys in the car was, you know, terrified of death. And and Andy was like, why are you scared to die? I'm not scared to die. Heaven is going to be awesome. And he just went on and on about how amazing a heaven was going to be because he and his Bible study had been studying Revelation and he just was just always just was very much focused on that, you know, and, and obviously I've told the story of him when he was seven telling me he wasn't going to grow up all the way and that he was going to be in heaven and he just was always completely fine with it and that's that is comforting. It gives me comfort. And I know it gives must have given you 
very similar comfort to see him holding a sign saying made whole in heaven. Like he was like, I'm okay. I'm going to be fine in heaven. And Andy was the same way. I mean, I'm not fine here at all without him, (laughs) but I know he's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Better than fine actually. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of the grief, you know, sometimes somebody who'd be with me and I'd be crying and grieving would say, Oh, Luke's okay now. And one time I said, I know Luke's okay now. I'm not okay. okay. Right. Exactly. (laughs) The grief is about my separation from my son here on the earth, which even though I believe there's a heaven, it just still feels so final when you're here on the earth. It's so funny. I've said this before. It, unfortunately, I mean, I wish it would help me today. I wish Mm -hmm. that knowledge would help me in my moment to moment grief, but in so many ways it doesn't. And and that's hard. And it's hard for, I think, other Christians to understand that if they haven't experienced it. If, yes. you know, if because you're like, I don't understand why you're so sad. Your son's in heaven. Like, <laughs> I totally know that. And don't get me wrong. I know that. And, and people that say, that say, well, this is all part of God's plan. I know that. But right. for me in this moment, I hate God's plan. I do. I do with like every bit of me. I hate it. That doesn't mean it's not right and good and the right thing. I know that. So please don't just preach that to me because it just, then I, now I feel like I'm a bad Christian too. And I don't, that's the last thing I need is feel like, oh, you're a grieving mom and a really bad Christian. (laughs) Please don't do that to me. Because I know these things. I know these things. It's just when you, your heart just still just aches aches yeah you just want you want your children nearby I mean I my children haven't moved away far away but even that is is hard for moms right you know your children grow up and might move across the country but imagine you can't talk to them you can't can't hug them you can't give that hug hug and there's just a part of me that dies you know I mean, there are still days that I just long to hug him so much and it just mm-hmm. hurts so badly that I can't. I, yeah, it's I I feel like the I mean, I, I think those moments probably aren't quite as common as they were obviously at the beginning, but I still have them. I still. Oh, do. yeah. I, yeah. And and that's, you know, it's coming up on four years and I see a difference in my grief. Yeah that it's just maybe not as often. Yeah. I'm able to engage more with the world fully, but the waves still come and it still feels just as intense that he's not here with me. Mm-hmm. And how is this our life? How did this happen yeah. to us? Yeah. And I don't mean it like, I don't know. You just, it's the worst thing you can imagine. So you think it won't ever happen to you. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. Because I'm not any more deserving or non deserving of it if it's anybody else. No, but... for sure not. Yeah. For sure not. But it's still this disbelief. I've been having that feeling a lot lately. I don't really know why. But just this, yeah. like, I'm just walking down the hallway or something and go, this is my life now. How is this my life? How did I get yeah. here? Like, how yeah. did I get here? It just doesn't feel right. It's. I still feel like, in some ways, I'm living someone else's life. Yes. Like, you know? Yeah. 
I think yeah. back three years ago, obviously three years ago was just before Andy died. I couldn't even imagine in a second that this is where I would be now. That I'd be like doing a podcast and like talking to grieving parents all the time. And I, I'm just, I, I can't believe this is what my life is. Right. Yeah. And it's the same for me. Like how, how did, yeah. So I'm going to remind my listeners because I did not mention this at the beginning, but Laura is one of the people that wrote in on my episode with Gwen, that follow up on, you know, kind of finding meaning making and purpose in your grief. So, and I said at that time that she was going to be on in a a few weeks. And so here she is. So um, why don't you just talk a little bit about that and about your life kind of now and what maybe made you write that and what you're thinking about? Yeah. So I was a psychology major in uh, college Mm -hmm. because I liked psychology. Didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a psychology and, major and a biology major. And I always said that the biology major was my practical major and the psychology major was my fun major because I yes, love yeah. psychology. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, that was actually when I had my first experience of some deep grief in college, my older brother died when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And I remember not long after he died, we were studying the stages of grief in one of my classes, probably fairly briefly, but I remember identifying with those stages. Mm -hmm. So it was an interest of mine, this, this grief. I had also lost my mom to cancer. Um, It's been seven and a half years ago now. Mm -hmm. And again, the grieving process, that was even more difficult than losing my brother and identifying this grieving process. I I just, because I like psychology, I kind of, I don't do this to other people, but I psychoanalyze myself. You know, why am I thinking Uh this way? Why am I feeling this way? How does this fit in? I I remember that. And then as a Christian too, how, you know, just coming to God with all these emotions. And Uh I remember the anger when my mom passed away with God surprised me. Uh And the anger also after Luke passed away, surprised me even more because yeah. it was even more intense. It lasted longer. I was yep. so angry with God, you know, and I think it's just my opinion, but you know, there is naturally anger in grief. If, if you don't have a relationship with God, you're probably not angry with God, <laughs> but sure. yeah. But for me, that's where I laid the blame. You know, it wasn't even somebody's fault that he got cancer. Right. It's right. Living in this world. Yeah. So I've wanted to, because it was already somewhat of an interest. Oh, I had also gone to school. I had gone back to school to get a master's of social work, but mm-hmm. when my mom got sick, I had stepped away from it thinking I would step back into it eventually, but I, n- I never did so far. Yeah. Um, Luke got sick about a year and a half after my mom died and and I've just, I kind of, as I've been an adult, I realized caring, caring profession, caring ministry is, is kind of what the way God made me, uh-huh. which is a lot of just listening. <laughs> I know. It's funny because I had that same realization after, after Andy died, I was trying to yeah. kind of define myself and I was realizing I'm just a caregiver. That's what I do. Yeah. That's 
that's like how I define myself, you know, yes, is really as a caregiver. So how can I do that? How can I do that in my grief? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I would say when with nurses, I think if I could handle blood and needles, I'd like to be a nurse (laughs) because you're you're so practically caring for people. But I have a a problem with not passing out in those situations. (laughs) Not a good career choice for you. Yeah. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But something along the lines of social work, psychology, you know, listening ministries that so so yeah in these last few years i've really wanted to use what god's teaching me what i've learned about grief to just walk with people through their grief yeah that's all we can do nobody's gonna you know early on when people would you know maybe even verbalize i wish there was some way i could help you i would think and maybe even say out loud once in a while unless you can bring luke back there's really nothing you can do to help relieve this pain Mm -hmm. but having people there with me knowing that they would stay by me even while I was in the pain meant so much to me I didn't feel so alone yeah and then even meeting other parents moms who have lost children when they were young helped me know I wasn't alone and and it feels like that's about the best we can do yeah Yeah. (laughs) which is a lot you know I don't want to make it sound like it, it's not a lot. It really is a lot to have those people in your life, even if it's just listening to a podcast and knowing, oh, how I feel. There's not something wrong with me. It's not unique to my situation. Mm-hmm. It is so nice to not feel as alone and it just yeah. not feel as isolated. I know I feel that way. Really yeah. just to be able to have those relationships and talks with people is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful for me too sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, even though I might be there for the other person to my purpose is to walk with them as, but I don't, I feel less alone even while I'm doing that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, you know, when Luke, when Luke was passing away, when he was, you know, under hospice care, he, he had a, a mission yeah. I don't know if he knew what it would become, but somebody had gifted him $10,000, a practical stranger, actually. Really? <laughs> Who had only met twice. Yes. Um, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story. Oh, but no, go ahead. That sounds wonderful. Our doctor, when Luke had his leg amputated, had another patient who was a man in his 50s who also had his leg amputated, I believe, because of cancer. And somehow... Our doctor was talking to this man about Luke and this man said, I'd really like to meet Luke and encourage him kind of in, in recovering with the amputation. And Uh Luke, this was very early on in treatment. And Luke said, you know, no, I I don't want to meet this stranger, you know, who had his leg amputated. He didn't really necessarily want to meet other people in that situation at that time. Right. Because he didn't even want to look at his own and looking at somebody else would really remind him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, when Luke was going through radiation the second time in the fall of 2016, there was a man that we ran into a couple of times getting radiation in Grand Rapids. And um, I'm not sure how they started talking, but the man thought that might be Luke. He didn't know Luke's name, but you know, Uh and he and his wife introduced himself 
Um, when I met him the one time I could see he was not in good shape. This, this man, Mm -hmm. they did say that, you know, he was getting radiation for a relapse of his cancer. I don't know any other real details, Mm -hmm. but so one time when my husband was taking him, they talked Luke and this man. And another time when I was there and the man passed away by the end of that year and his wife asked, uh, for our address and the doctor called us. I said, sure, that's fine. And we got very nice notes from this woman that um, her husband wanted to give Luke (laughs) $10,000 to um, just kind of make his life better as he was going, you know, whatever he wanted or needed. Mm -hmm. Here's $10,000. And he had that he had been inspired by Luke and Luke's kind of bravery and attitude just by meeting him twice and hearing about him through it, their doctor. Wow. And yeah, we were amazed at the time Luke wanted to get a running blade for his leg and try to learn how to run. But um, as it turned out, the prosthetic doctor or the company that made this running blade ended up donating it to us as a gift (laughs) without us asking. (laughs) Okay. Right. So then he still had this $10,000 and um, he just didn't, there wasn't, he couldn't really travel and, you know, the doctors wouldn't allow us to do much traveling. The tumors in his lungs seem to be the problem with traveling. Mm-hmm. Again, it was just sitting there in a savings account. And as he was getting closer in that summer, he said, um, Hey, you know, can I give that $10,000 to friends and other students who say they can't go to Young Life Camp because they don't have the money. Because he said, I always I would ask my friends, I wanted them to go to Young Life Camp. I wanted them to hear the gospel. Yeah. And a lot of times the money was why they couldn't go. Could, could we put that money towards it? And my husband said, oh, yeah, sure. That's great. You know, and I, my husband's wheels started spinning on how to do this practically. And then he said to me at one time too, in those last few weeks, mom, what's going to happen to the money you said was saved up for college? And I said, um, I don't know. And he said, can that go towards helping kids go to young life camp? And I said, oh yeah, sure. We can do that. Yeah, Uh that's great. So my husband started a fund that people could donate to. We call it the Luke legacy fund. Uh Uh-huh. And then we we give out scholarships from it to help kids, students go to Young Life camps. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, he knows all the numbers. I know we have three, no, maybe $600,000 in there now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The donations we get, we've given out 300 or 400 scholarships over the last few years. Although last year, because of COVID. Yeah, there weren't any. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So... But, you know, it's this way that Luke keeps giving, even though he's not here. And and my ministry is connected to Luke, too. I'm going to start a grief ministry at my church called Uh Grief Share. And it's, again, it's like I can keep giving because of Luke. Yeah. But it's in, it's with, you know, my gifts and talents that that God has endowed me with. This is just the way I'm made. I'm a caregiver, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm Yep. I relate a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to kind of keep Luke's memory alive. Both of those things, I think, to right. be able to do those scholarships. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I just think 
I'm sure Luke had no idea how big, you know, he just thought we'd give all that money away and, yeah. you know, that many kids would have been able to go to camp. But my husband decided to make it this this ongoing fund and ask for donations. And some people just are so touched by his story. They do want to give in that way. So, mm -hmm. and yeah. to me, it's, you know, I always say to God, please let Luke know when this student asked Jesus into his life, you know, it was because of the scholarship of his, you know, I hope you let Luke know that up in heaven, that there are people coming to know you Lord because of him. So yeah. Well, it's interesting because, so Andy and Peter were both in the Grand Rapids Choir of Men and Boys, and um, when Andy died, we asked for all donations to just go there, mm -hmm. to go there, and and they did, and probably got, I think, fifty or $60,000 that year, and and, the, and then we've continued to kind of support them and, and give them some money as well, but the boys do have to pay tuition. So the men that are in the choir don't, but the boys have to pay something. And it's, it's not a, like a lot, lot of money, but it's a few hundred dollars that you have to pay to be in it for the whole year. And then that's four concert series, you know, that they have somewhere between two and six concerts in, in each of the, of the four. And it's, it's a wonderful thing and beautiful experience but obviously with COVID, everything got shut down and, and it's been shut down for a long time. And actually the first, very first thing that was canceled was the Andy Larson Memorial Concert that was supposed to be done that we had, um, you know, a choir coming from England, Andy's favorite choir from England coming. And we had all the tickets sold within weeks and that was canceled. That was the very first thing canceled. And the choir has not met yet. They're, they're going to be starting up again this coming fall. But... Mm -hmm when when they're talked about coming back they were able to say because of you know first of all some of my uh, other doctors in my group decided to make an Andy Larson scholarship fund to pay for some of the kids if they didn't have the money to be able to pay for them to be in the choir. And so there is the Andy Larson scholarship fund that is in existence. And I don't know how much money is in there and that will help pay some tuitions. But the right. even kind of cooler thing this year is coming up this fall. They have brought in so much money through our family and through Andy that they're not charging any boy tuition the entire year. So yeah. it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful gift to be able to give and you know it's very sad because obviously Peter didn't have his last concerts and now he's really growing and his voice is finally kind of changing what Andy's never did so he's not going to be able to do it again you know we were had probably 75 80 percent of the music recorded for a CD commemorative CD of Andy and Peter was supposed to sing a solo in that which now he won't be able to do and um Anyway, there was a lot of loss, but there's a lot of blessing, too, that we will be able to, you know, continue to bless this choir. And they yes. feel so fortunate that they're financially in a good spot, which they wouldn't have been otherwise, right? That we were able to yeah. give them enough donation that, that they feel like they're on good footing when things do start up again, so... Right. Right. Yeah.
Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a, yeah. And we, as moms, selfishly would trade that. <laughs> yeah. For having our kids back. I, you know, people tell me you're so strong in your faith. And I think, <laughs> I don't know if I am or not, but I would trade all these blessings still to oh, have him back sure. in my life. Yeah, for um, sure. But Andy you know, loves singing that sacred music, that church music. I mean, he he loved that. So I'm glad that we will be able to, again, you know, bless the Grand Rapids community with that. Because they're yes. only about, I think there are only about six men and boys choirs in existence in this country. Most of them are in Europe. So um, it, it's, yeah. it's a blessing that we have. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I have just feel like my last interviews here with have been lots of tears. I don't know if it's the anniversary date coming up or what it is, but thank you yeah. so much for sharing Luke. You're welcome. I loved hearing about him. I loved hearing about his faith. Thank I just, you. Anyway, thank it's a real blessing to be able to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.